words we're looking at are atonement and propitiation, which may be a little more difficult than the last couple weeks. I mean, for the most part, we, we all have just this foundational understanding of what it means to be victorious or, or what it means to be justified, right? Those words are, are we're used to them in the, in the outside world. But outside of church, I can almost guarantee that atonement and propitiation are not part of your weekly vocabulary. These aren't words thrown into your everyday discussions. In fact, even in church, you probably don't hear those words all that much. I, I don't think you've probably heard me say the word atonement before, and I can almost guarantee you've never heard me say propitiation until two seconds ago. These are, are two different words with different definitions, but often Bible translators use them interchangeably. So this morning we're going to talk about both of them, even though in our passage only atonement is mentioned, but even a, a more accurate translation would be propitiation in this passage. Um, but let's turn to that now together. First John 1, starting with verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. So John writes that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And, and there's that word, right? Atoning. When John is writing this letter, he's, he's writing to uh, a bunch of house churches that he pastors. John's churches are primarily composed of people with Jewish backgrounds. Most likely they grew up practicing Judaism or, or they're one or two generations removed from it where their parents or grandparents had practiced. So this idea of atoning sacrifice would be very familiar with them. They remember going to the temple, or I've heard stories of, of their parents or grandparents going to the temple. They, they have probably celebrated Yom Kippur, which it, uh, means the Day of Atonement. And as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're so removed from this that we may not grasp the whole meaning of this word. So this morning, I want to talk about some, some Jewish practices, places, and, and things that can help us shine a light on what it means that, that Christ is the atoning sacrifice. So we're going to start by looking at the Jewish temple. This temple was, was somehow both incredibly inclusive and exclusive at the same time. See, anyone could worship there regardless of, of their age or, or gender or status or even religion. But depending on who you were or what you were, you were given different access to the temple. 
the first level of access was, was the court of Gentiles. It's the surrounding area. This, this label Gentiles essentially means non-Jewish people. So people who didn't believe in or, or practice the Jewish religion and are not part of that Jewish community. In the court of Gentiles, they're welcome to worship there. Whether or not they believed in the Jewish God or practiced the Jewish religion, they were able to go to the temple for worship, but that's the only area they'd be able to access the court of Gentiles. If you're an Israelite, you could go one level further in the middle court, which was called the court of women. This court was sectioned off from the rest, and and there would be signs saying that if you are not Jewish, you cannot enter into this court under the penalty of death. We've actually uncovered some of those signs, and if you go to Jerusalem, you can see some of those original signs today. Even within this court, there are different sections where people could go to. There's a balcony that that only women were allowed, and and the main floor only the men were allowed, And, and as you got closer to the middle, it was reserved for only the the holiest or, or uh, most law-keeping men, the most ritually pure Jewish men. And then you have the court of priests, which is where the court of, or which is where only Jewish priests could enter. Now inside of that court, you had this cl- tall enclosed area called the sanctuary, and the sanctuary was split in two by a large, heavy curtain. On the near side of that curtain, it was called the holy place. This is where the menorah and other Jewish things were. Um, And behind the curtain was the holy of holies. The holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was, and and which is where the Jewish people believed that, that God resided here on earth with them. And no one was allowed in the holy of holies except for one priest one day a year. And we'll get to that in a moment. But the whole temple was laid out this way to, to get across one central idea. Israel, in their sinful state, was not able to approach God. Now, the holier you were, the, the closer you could get. Outside, you have the Gentiles and you have the Jewish, then the most pure Jewish, and then the, the Jewish priests. But only one person, one time a year, could get to approach God in that way. See, their sin cut them off from God's presence. The the architecture of the temple communicated that that sinful people cannot approach a holy God. But now let's turn our attention to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was just this this big box with the lid on it, and connected to the lid were were two figurines of of two angels or, or cherubs, and it was said in between those two cherubs, God dwelt on earth. This was so important to the Israelites, so important that, in fact, they would, no matter where they were, they would know where Jerusalem was and and would be able to point in whatever direction it was because that's where their temple and their God was. Are you all ready for some trivia? All right. (laughs) Okay. Okay. does anybody know what the three things, or one of the three things inside of the Ark of the Covenant was? Ten Commandments. That's one. Manna, two. Yeah, y'all did way better than I would have been able to do before preparing for this sermon. Great job. 
a jar of manna, Aaron's budding staff, and the Ten Commandments. Do we know what these symbolized? Yes. They're all symbols of Israel's sin. Remember the story of Israel. God rescued his people from Egypt. They followed Moses as they escaped from Pharaoh, and and Pharaoh is chasing them, and, and they get to the Red Sea, and it seems like they're doomed until God parts that Red Sea. I can remember, or I can just imagine how amazing it was to walk across that sea with, with giant walls of water on either side. Amazed at what God has done. They get to the other side and, and the water comes crashing down on, on Pharaoh and his Egyptian armies and, and Israel is finally free. They sing this song, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And then about 40 days later, after watching these miraculous deeds and and singing of God's glorious triumph, they start grumbling and complaining, saying, oh, that we had died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt when, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. We have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, to kill the whole assembly with hunger. The Lord hears them and he sends food in the form of, of honey bread from heaven, which, which is manna. But they don't trust that he's going to continue to provide. So they overstock the, the manna and it, it fills with maggots and, and Israel's trust and celebration in the Lord is, is waning. So a jar of manna was placed in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of Israel's sin. Time goes on. Israel is still wandering in the wilderness, but God continues to provide. They, they meet enemies, but, but through God's help, they're able to overcome them. Then one day, Moses goes to the top of a mountain to talk to God. And God gives Moses a bunch of instructions on, on how to lead Israel's people, or the Israelites and, and how they should live. And this is also when God gives him the Ten Commandments. But Moses was up there for a while. And Israel grew impatient. They, they melted their gold and created this little calf, a golden calf, and, and worshipped it and said, This is the God who led us from Egypt. Eventually, Moses makes his way down the mountain with the two tablets that God wrote the commandments on and and sees what is happening and he throws the commandments to the ground, cracking them. Eventually, Moses brings God two new tablets to write on and those tablets were also put in the ark as a reminder of Israel's sin. Sometime later, the Israelites do what they do best and, and they start grumbling again. There's a group of them no longer wanting Moses and Aaron to lead, and an uprising starts to form in order to overthrow them. So the Lord tells Moses to have a leader of each of the 12 tribes take his staff and write his name on it and place it in the tent. The Lord said he was going to cause one of the staffs to, to sprout, and that would be the staff of the leader he chose. The next day, they went to the tent and saw Aaron's staff had not only sprouted, but it budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. And so Aaron's budding staff was also placed inside the ark as a reminder of Israel's sin. 
Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, I, I thought the whole point of the architecture of the temple was supposed to communicate that sinful humans can't approach a holy God. Why would there be three objects of representing human sinfulness right underneath God's presence? And this is where the idea of atonement and propitiation came in. Remember, I said one person was allowed in the Holy of Holies. This would happen once a year on a day called Yom Kippur, which again means Day of Atonement. What would happen is the high priest, he would take two goats as sacrifice, and, and he'd place his hands over the heads of the goats and confess all of Israel's sin, the sins of God's people. One of the goats was called the scapegoat. That goat would be led far away, never to return with the idea that God removes sins from us. The second goat would be slaughtered. The blood would be collected in a bowl, and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the goat's blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now you have God on top, representation of Israel's sin on bottom, and in the middle, you'd have a lid with the blood on it. And it's not like they had someone come in the next day and, and wipe off all the blood to get it nice and pristine for, for next year's Yom Kippur. No, it, it would stay on there year after year, eventually caking over the top of the lid. The idea behind that is that when God looks down to see Israel's sin, he doesn't see it. He sees the blood of the sacrifice covering it. Through the blood of the goats, Israel's sin had been atoned for. Atoning refers to the satisfying of an injury or a wrong. Israel's wrong had been satisfied. Through the blood of these goats, God's wrath towards Israel's sin had been propitiated, which means that it had been turned away. This is an incredibly long way of saying that when John writes to his churches saying that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the atoning sacrifice for sin, he is the propitiation for our sins, this is the picture he's creating. John is, is overseeing this network of house churches going through a crisis. There's individuals in John's churches that are claiming that they have an intimate walk with God and, and that their lives are unstained by sin, that they had done no wrong. And the problem isn't that what these people had done or isn't that these people had done anything wrong. It, it was that they were refusing to see or acknowledge the wrong that they had done. John's saying that God is light. If you claim to be aligned with him and yet you walk in the darkness, you're living a lie. But if you walk in alignment with God, you will have fellowship with, with one another. And even when we do sin, you'll be covered and purified by the blood of Jesus. John acknowledges it's, it's impossible not to sin. And if you claim you aren't sinning, you're not just fooling yourselves, you're ignoring the truth. But if you acknowledge and confess your sins, you'll be forgiven. John wrote this to his churches to tell them that the goal is not to sin. In an ideal world, they would all be living as sinless people, but, but that's not the case. And that's okay, because they have an advocate in Jesus Christ, who is the atoning sacrifice for their sins. And, and friends, 
the good news for John's churches is the same good news for us. Ideally, we'd live sinless lives. That'd be great. And it's okay to strive for sinning less. We should want to avoid sin. We shouldn't be complacent with our sinfulness. We also need to acknowledge the fact that we are going to fall short. We know that, that we can't live up to God's standards for our lives. I mean, I can't even live up to my own standards for my own life of, of how I should love and live. But we don't have to be afraid of that fact. We, we can acknowledge our sins and bring them to God because his son has already come to us. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so God doesn't look down on us and see a bunch of sinful human beings, a bunch of people unworthy of his presence. No, he looks down and, and sees a bunch of people covered by the sacrificial blood of Jesus. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. God's wrath on us, on our sins, has been turned away. So we no longer have to be afraid of our sins. Since they have been atoned for, we, we don't have to fear the acknowledge of it. We don't have to fear confessing them to God. Instead, we can now stand free. We can now stand forgiven. We can now stand in the presence of our God and the abounding and never-ending love of our Father. Let me pray. Father, we come to you this morning so thankful. Thankful for your love, that you would send Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for us, for our sins. Thankful that the veil has been torn, and so now we can approach you boldly and with confidence. Lord, we're thankful that you're a God who loves us and forgives us. Lord, help us to live out of your love and forgiveness and, and to be able to share it with the world, not just through our words, but through our, our posture and our actions. It's your son's most precious and holy name that we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.